1: This is Elizabeth Cronin, a host for the New Books Network, and today I am talking with Dr. Debbie Sorensen, author of the ACT Daily Journal. With the help of this newly published journal, you can dramatically change your life in just minutes a day. We all know that when faced with life's challenges, it's easy to lose track of what's important, to get stuck in our thoughts and emotions, and become bogged down by day-to-day problems. The real world has a way of driving a wedge between us and a deeper, more meaningful life. Now there's a flexible program for learning how to practice a proven effective therapy protocol on your own schedule. With the ACT Daily Journal, you'll learn about the six core processes of acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT. These include mindfulness, acceptance, and value-based living. And you will even learn about a seventh, self-compassion. If there was ever a time to adopt the ACT approach to living, it is now. It's never been so important to live flexibly with more meaning and with a deeper understanding of shared struggles and our inherent humanity. Let this journal, with its framework for living well, guide you toward what really matters to you. Dr. Debbie Sorensen is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Denver, Colorado, and a part-time clinical researcher at the Rocky Mountain Regional Veterans Administration Medical Center. She is also a VA regional trainer and training consultant in acceptance and commitment therapy. She received her PhD in psychology from Harvard University. In addition, she co-created and co-hosts the popular psychologists Off the Clock podcast, which you can find wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for being here today, Debbie. I'm super excited to talk to you about your new book, the ACT Daily Journal, You know, Get Unstuck and Live Fully with Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And, uh, you know, as I was just telling you, it's so full of information and exercises. And so I'm excited to dig in and, and hear a little bit more about the process for you.
0: Well, thank you, Elizabeth. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for, for interviewing me.
1: <laughs> so, it, it, you know, we'd like to start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and just sort of the, the details behind how you came to, to write the book.
0: Well, there's a, a long story there, so I'll try to, <laughs> to, to kind of nutshell it, and it actually involves the New Books Network because, so trying tried my best to nutshell this, so I was doing some interviews for the New Books Network psychology channel, as you know, because we have that connection, um, yes. with Elizabeth, and I really enjoyed doing it, but ended up doing kind of a spin-off podcast of my own with some other clinical psychologists is called psychologists off the clock. Um, I'm a
1: clinical. Good podcast. Yeah. Full oh, of, full thank of you. great interviews. <laughs> thank
0: you. Thank you. Yeah. And actually we cross post a few between psychologists off the clock and new books network. So that's been a nice collaboration, but, um, yeah, because I'm a clinical psychologist and I, you know, do therapy and we had just this sense that there's such great information in the psychology literature and in the world of clinical psychology, but we really wanted to share it with the world, you know, to make it more accessible to people who, who don't have the training or the background and also just conversations that therapists themselves might find helpful with experts in the field and, you know, the latest books that are out and that kind of thing. So I started this podcast up with um, a couple of people and a few clinical psychologists. Now there's four of us and one of my co-hosts that I started it up with was Diana Hill. And so we've been doing this for a few years and then we just had the idea of, you know, turning some of this into a book. We both really love acceptance and commitment therapy, which is what the book is about and have found it really helpful with our clients and in our own lives. Um, And so it actually kind of, the, the, the plan for the book sort of morphed a little bit as we wrote it and we ended up writing it as a guided journal. So it both has some reading, some different practices that you can try. It's kind of a self-help book. And then also some journaling because we really feel that using writing is a way to help you personalize it, to try things out, to kind of play around with how it's working in your own life. And writing can be a great tool for perspective taking. So that's sort of the how it came about. That's the story It's
1: Yeah. So how did you get interested in ACT? What was, and, and you talk about, you know, there's a lot of vignettes in the book, you and Diana share a lot about yourselves and your own experiences, but what was your, just for listeners, um, what was your exposure? When did you first encounter ACT?
0: I very first heard the word ACT or Acceptance and Commitment Therapy back when I was starting my clinical training. I think it was my second year practicum at Mass Mental out there where you live in Massachusetts. It's a a state hospital. I can't remember the full, Mass Mental Health Clinic, Massachusetts something.
1: (laughs) Massachusetts Mental Health Clinic, yes. (laughs) Yes,
0: yes, yes, which is a state hospital, Harvard-affiliated, and I was actually doing dialectical behavior therapy and cognitive behavior therapy. And I had trained in a variety of different therapy practices. And I heard about ACT and I was intrigued. So I started reading and then I went to a workshop at some point, I think during my internship year, and I kept just hearing more and more. And it just really deeply resonated with me personally. I think in a way that the other modes, I never really landed on a therapy mode that I felt like this is what I want to be doing with my clients. Like I really want to immerse myself in it until I discovered acceptance and commitment therapy. And then I really plunged in, I did pretty extensive training within the VA system and became a trainer myself. And I mean, the truth is that the reason I landed on acceptance and commitment therapy is partly because I loved doing it with my clients and I felt like it was really helpful with my clients, but more so because it was a therapy that I felt most personal connection with. I was like this is the therapy I want for me. And I think a lot of therapists feel that way when they learn about acceptance and commitment therapy. They're like I want to do this myself. I want to use these strategies in my own life.
1: Yeah, our stories are so similar. My first my first practicum was at McLean Hospital and I was doing dialectical behavior therapy and you know they talked about how powerful that therapy was and how transformational it was. end of the year, it it had transformed me and how I was living my life. So let's back up a little bit though. And, and let me, let me ask you to tell people what that means. What, what, what are we talking about? Dialectical behavior, acceptance and commitment there? Like what let's, let's dig into what makes it so, um, so valuable.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, let me, let me just say within the context of what's unique about this therapy. So acceptance and commitment therapy is a behavioral therapy, and it's, I think, a, a slightly different spin than cognitive behavioral therapy that CBT, that people may have heard about. It's There's some overlap, but it's a little bit more acceptance-based. So instead of trying to change your thoughts, it's about just being aware of and accepting of your thoughts and your emotions. It's about being more present in the moment, you know, so there's a mindfulness component to it as well, sort of a perspective taking component. But then ultimately acceptance and commitment therapy, the goal is not symptom reduction. It's not to feel less depressed. It's not to feel less anxious. It's to live the most meaningful values, consistent life that you can live. And to do that, even when, you know, different thoughts and emotions are showing up, even uncomfortable, painful ones, And so it's really about loosening up on those thoughts and emotions, being aware and just moving towards what's important to you. And sometimes there's some change, you know, when there's something when there's something getting in the way of that or when you're doing things in your life that aren't effective. Um, Often when we're doing things in life that aren't effective, there's some emotional avoidance going on um, or experiential avoidance. And so acceptance and commitment therapy is more about making room for your thoughts and emotions and doing what's important to you. And we call it, it's acceptance and commitment therapy, but it's actually, it kind of goes beyond therapy because I think you don't have to have like a mental health condition to benefit from ACT. It helps with you know, just general performance at work, you know, with sports, it helps with relationships. It just helps people thrive, you know, when the life is has ups and downs. And I think we've learned in the past year that there's, there's always challenges and painful moments along the way. Like no one is immune, immune from that and act, I think can really help you just have better awareness of your thoughts and emotions and do what's effective to help you thrive.
1: So that's, really resonates with my experience and my, my training in mindfulness meditation. And I think that the, this is a really uh, nice journal because you work your way through it and you really break down what it means to just accept our feelings and, you know, our conditioning, as they say, is, is to resist and to run away from, and to try to get rid of any uncomfortable feeling. As soon as we encounter self-doubt or fear, we're looking for some way to numb it or fix it or, you know, manage it, control it in some way. So I think it's an interesting idea for someone who hasn't heard about ACT that, wait a minute, you want me to accept? And in mindfulness, we say allow something, an an emotion to be there. You want to say a little bit more about how does that help? I mean, why, if you allow something, it's, aren't you making room for more of that? I mean,
0: I love this question because I think really what's, what's driving this is this, this myth that we have that is just so pervasive. It comes, it's very just out there. I think culturally is this belief that we should feel good all the time, right? We should have these happy, pleasant thoughts, we should be happy, we should be calm, we should feel content. And if we don't, there's something wrong with us, right? Like, we, that means there's something wrong, and we have to fix that problem. And the human mind, like we are really good at fixing problems. I mean, that's like our gift as a species. And I think that we just really naturally buy into that belief, like, oh, I'm having self doubt, I got to get rid of that thought and replace it with, you know a self-confident thought. Oh, I'm feeling anxious. That's really bad. I've got to stop feeling anxious. I'm feeling sad. I don't like that. And so I think that we just get into these patterns. It's not like we sit there and think to ourselves like, oh, I'm going to avoid feeling anxious by drinking a bottle of wine every night or something like that. We don't, it's not like we consciously do that, or I'm going to deal with boredom by checking my phone compulsively, but it's more that I think over time that gets sort of reinforced, right? We start to do these things to feel better in the short-term, but often what happens, and this is where I think, this is kind of to get back to your question, I think this is why that's not really effective. First of all, it doesn't really work in the long run, right? It's like a temporary short-term solution, but often it really takes us away from our values, from the things that matter to us, especially if we're overusing one of these avoidance strategies. It just, it interferes with doing the things that we want to be doing with our time. Often though, the other thing that happens is it, it creates this struggle with our experience as it is. And so not only does it not work, but we can spend a lot of time and effort and energy just trying to feel something other than what we feel. And actually by doing that, it like digs us in deeper. We get more stuck. Do you know what I mean? So like, if you're spending all your time trying not to be anxious, it backfires. And not only that, it's like all that energy is spent struggling with the anxiety to the point where, you know, it's just not it's not helpful. It's like swimming upstream, you know what I mean?
1: Right. 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 And because what I like is that, and, and again, it, the, in the journal, there's just so many different, approaches to how, how do I, how do I look at what happens? Because like you said, it's so pervasive and we're not thinking about doing it, but we do that. Like something happens and we just, without even being consciously aware, we immediately react and we reach for something to make us feel better, or we distract ourselves in some way. And it what's what I think you're, you're speaking to is that that just adds to the problem because We're feeling something that's unpleasant or uncomfortable. And then we're, we're, we're deciding, oh, this is not okay. This is wrong. So now we have a bad feeling and now we're judging it to be a bad feeling. And I don't think people know though. Look, well, what else am I supposed to do? I mean, it's not like anyone's teaching us another, well, well, what are, what do you, what do you want me to do? And so that's, I think what's very powerful of this is like, so we are kind of stuck and you, you, call it the journal and you say, get unstuck and live fully. And so how do you get unstuck? And I don't know if there are a few specific examples that you want to mention that are in the journal, or if you have like a favorite um, strategy or teaching point.
0: Yes. You know, I'm going to, I would love to share Just a very simple exercise that I use myself and I share with my clients that I just, I call it, this is what I call it, pause, notice, choose. And it's simple in the sense that you don't need to do anything. It doesn't take a lot of extra time. You don't need to do anything super complicated here. Um, This is just a very brief way to, to deal with these moments when you're noticing, like maybe, I don't know, during the pandemic, people are sometimes around their families a lot and they're getting a little irritated by them. Or you could do this when you're feeling a little anxious or just stuck in a way. So what you do for this skill is you just first, if you notice that something is shifting internally, like you're starting to feel that irritation rise, you just pause. So you get a little space between you and what's happening. And you I mean, honestly, people in our field always say this, <laughs> it sounds annoying, but take a breath, you know, just pause, breathe. So that's the first step is like the pause. So just getting a little space because so often we just react like so quickly. We don't even, it's like autopilot. We don't even know we're doing it before we've reacted. So you just pause and then you notice, and this is the skill of, first of all, what's happening, like what's the situation here. Notice what sensations you feel like. Where are you feeling this in your body? Like maybe you're tense in your shoulders. Maybe you feel something in the pit of your stomach going on. Notice your thoughts. Like, is your mind telling you something unhelpful about this? Is your mind racing? You know, are you distracted or what's, are you caught in a story about this thing that's going on? So just notice your thoughts and then notice. Your feelings, like what emotions are showing up about this. And sometimes our emotions can actually tell us something. Like if you are feeling angry, maybe there's something that's not right here. If you're feeling anxious, maybe that means you care about this. Maybe it's a sign that this is important to you, you know? So that's the notice skill is you just, and again, you don't need to like stop and go to another room for an hour or anything like this. You can literally do this in the moment. Just notice what's showing up for you. And then the third part, so pause, notice, choose. The choose part is to think about, okay, what are my values here? Like if I was going to respond to this situation at my best and be the person I want to be in this situation, what would I do? This is really, I mean, this is values. This is also just thinking like, I have a choice about my behavior. <laughs> I have a cho- When I'm feeling irritated, I'm getting, you know, pandemic stress and I'm irritated and I'm getting grumpy, like- Does my best self go around shouting at my kids? No. I mean, I do that sometimes, but that is definitely not my best self. That's not my values as a parent. And so what is my best self? Well, I'm going to, you know, be reassuring. I'm going to be respectful. I'm going to. And so, again, you're creating that space so that you get a little bit more of a, a choice about how you respond. So pause, notice, choose, it's simple. If you practice it, I do think it's a skill that takes a little bit of practice to do it in those hard moments, but if you practice it, you can start to get a little better at it over time. And you probably won't always get it exactly right. You won't always be your best self, but when you notice that you're straying from your best self, you can always just kind of gently nudge yourself back in that direction.
1: That's, cool. That's a great, so pause, notice, choose. Anybody listening, can practice this when they're running late for something or stuck in traffic, because most people will feel that physical tension and they, they, they can pretty clearly get in touch with, Oh my gosh, I'm going to be late. Like this is a problem. And so that's a, that's a really good one. I love that pause, notice, choose. So that was my first reaction is that's a really helpful little you know, tip for people. But the other thing that occurred to me was, you know, before we started recording, you were telling me about, you know, your daughter, your six-year-old having a little bath last night. And that's a really gentle way, like, because I'm with you, I think, you know, you need to start with small stuff, look for small opportunities where you can, it's easier to be your best self, even though your reaction will be upsetting. And I don't know if you want to share that, but I I just, I love that. It's a really good example of those moments when you can say to yourself, what kind of a parent do I want to be?
0: Yeah, I'll share that story. That's so funny because I didn't really connect the dots there with that. But, you know, part of our mission in the book is to just acknowledge that, these daily moments in life, we all have them, psychologists all the time. included, yes. all the time. Yeah. So my daughter last night, first of all, to set the context a little bit, um, my husband was not here. And so I was doing solo parenting, which <laughs> is
1: always, always a
0: challenge. You know, it's always a challenge. And I have, I have two children They're One's about to turn nine and the other one is six. And my six-year-old was in the bathtub and I ran downstairs to let the dog out. And I came up and I was helping her rinse her hair. And I was like, why isn't this rinsing out? And it took me a minute to piece it together, but she had dumped an entire bottle of shampoo into the bathwater. And as I was telling you, Elizabeth, she is old enough. She did this deliberately. You know what I mean? She is not too. She (laughs) She, she she knows what what she was doing. And I definitely, you know, and I think actually a lot of times that time of day is when I start to just not be my best self as a parent, because I'm tired, I'm ready to be done. Usually they're tired, too. So they are not cooperating. Um, So yeah, and I mean, honestly, I could have handled the situation worse for sure. I mean, I, I definitely I was kind of like, you know, (laughs) let's not do that again. Oh, you know, I didn't really lose it. But I was also I was
1: frustrated Mm -hmm. for sure. Right? Well, I would say that's the kind of situation where most most parents, male or mother, father, or even even if another anybody would be like, "What did you do?" I mean, they would just you know the typical thing that is hurtful because you know the child ends up feeling ashamed of themselves. And you, know, you were telling me you said to her, "What? What happened?" And she just said, "Yeah, I poured the whole thing." And then you said, "Why did you do it?" And she just said, "I don't know. I mean, kids don't always know." And so, you know, you, if you can just pause and recognize okay, I'm not happy with this. I don't think this is acceptable. You know, I don't want her to do this again. I don't want to convey that this is okay. At the same time, you can notice that maybe you're, it's just, you're feeling an intense need to deal with this in a way that, is it really going to help? I mean, is it really like, you know, and then you can choose To still be firm and say, well, don't do it again, but you can choose to inhibit yourself. And and the funny thing is, is that we're the adults. We've got to model that for them. That's exactly what happened. She couldn't inhibit the urge to dump the shampoo. And so now we as the adults can inhibit the urge to yell about it. And so I love that example because that's the way for me, I think that's how we have to start practicing because then when there's something Much more like you know a big financial issue or something. You know, we have to practice these skills. And so I love I love that story.
0: Thank you. Well, and and to also, I mean, I think part of the reason why it felt important to me to not lose it is that I could see her face when I put two and two together and figured out what happened. I could see that she was a little bit embarrassed, ashamed, and a little bit, I think, afraid that she was gonna get in big trouble for this or that I was gonna, you know. And so I think, you know, in that particular situation, I didn't wanna, you know, yell at her or shame her or something like that. I wanted to make make it clear that she probably shouldn't be doing that. (laughs) But at the same time, I mean, in that context, I just felt like she knew, she knew she shouldn't have done it. I don't think I really needed to do much more to drive that point home.
1: Right. And on some level though, I think as parents too, we also know, and you were talking about this earlier, that we know we shouldn't be yelling at them either. You know, we know when a six-year-old does something impulsively, they're not trying to make our life difficult. I mean, they they really aren't. It can feel that way, but you know, it's just like every thought isn't true. Every feeling is simply information for you, not to take it as like the facts, but okay, you're feeling that way, and you can choose how much you're going to let that be an issue. So I think that's interesting. Um, Likewise, I just want to say in the book, too, that, you know, you and Diana do a really nice job of sharing, in which I was saying, I think it's unusual, you know, that somebody who a psychologist is, is sharing parts of themselves in the service of, Helping people feel more comfortable of like modeling, like I have these feelings too, and and demonstrating the effectiveness of these skills and these tools.
0: Yeah, I think in the book we did so we have a little bit of reading to do, a little practice, a little journaling, and we have an anecdote, like a little personal story. Um, we kind of toggle between the two of us sharing stories, and actually we had we had to edit the book way down, as you often do. And we had, for each one, we had so many different examples to choose from. And we had to sort of select, you know, which ones made the cut. But I think that, you know, our stance, and this is not always the case for every therapy mode, as you know, Elizabeth, Um, some therapy modes, therapists really don't share much. And, you know, on the podcast, we have the same thing where, we have to be deliberate about it. This isn't about spilling our deepest, darkest secrets to the public or anything like that. It's not a memoir. It's not, um, you know, sharing. What what we're trying to do is to really just humanize the struggles that everyone gets into, and to help people know that we're all human. We're all in the same soup. We all have our personal examples and therapists included. We're not trying to be perfect or holier than thou here. It's, and, and I think when we share, it's for the sake of validating, right? Like, yeah, my mind sometimes gets very preoccupied and I struggle with my own stuff. And, and I think that's my stance with my clients. I sometimes use self-disclosure to illustrate something and to, um, I mean, I'm sure you know you're always trying to find this balance between you don't want to make it about you, you don't want to overshare, but you want to be a full human who's also vulnerable in the room with your client, and that's that's consistent with this particular model.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I I think it's really helpful, and I and I think you know if someone is in therapy, I've had a lot of people start therapy with me and express appreciation for that, and I, I think you're right as long as what we share doesn't make the person working with us feel worried about us. Then, you know, as long as what we share, we're able to share as an example of you too can manage this. Then I think it's a source of comfort to hear like, oh, you know, you once struggled with this and now you manage it. It's not like we make any of our problems go away, but that's what this is about getting unstuck and living more fully. You know, I like, I like, how you chose to express that because I think it's very common to feel sort of stuck and to have that sense that even when you're successful, that you're not living a full life.
0: Yeah. We all have our stuff, right? I mean, everyone, it's, I don't know about you, but it's, to me, it's been really interesting. I think being a therapist this past year, as we've gone through so many challenges in the world, you know, with, the pandemic and the political everything that's happened and just all the you know the um you know the the race racial justice movement last year and it's just been there's been so much and it's been interesting because i think sometimes we're the therapist and we're sitting there really going through the same kinds of ups and downs as our clients and it's been a challenge i think an extra challenge to find that sweet spot. Because sometimes I talk to my clients and it's like, yeah, me too. Like I'm having trouble sleeping because I'm so worried about what's going on too. But it's like, is it in the service of helping our clients or not? Um, But it's been really interesting. I think a, a lot of therapists I've talked to have felt this way too. It's like, our clients are coming to us, feeling the stress, the weight of the world as we are too.
1: Right. Right. Which I think one of the things that, you know, we have to take responsibility for is taking care of ourselves, which is what we're advocating for. I mean, it's funny because I was telling you how like I only got halfway through this book. There's so much in, I mean, there's so much in here and I'm just really trying to take it all in. I'm before I try to get through it all, I'm going to actually go back and I'm going to, I was trying to read through it for today, but I'm going to go back and do the exercises. And I think, you know, a lot of this isn't completely new to me by any stretch. And I still need to go back over that. I, it's still really helpful to like reflect on and journal about your values, your goals, and to like, you know, I think what you said building in the opportunity to practice, just pausing and reflecting. Cause if you don't do that, then you, your choices are more limited. You know, it's when you stop and reflect that you actually start to see oh, there's a lot more possibilities.
0: I'm so glad to hear that. I, our hope was that this book would be accessible to anyone, that you could be, you know, outside the field of mental health and never heard of acceptance and commitment therapy in your life and get something out of it, but that also seasoned therapists who know this approach, like you, who are really um, probably have a similar approach in your practice can also still benefit from it because I think that practicing what we preach in our own lives, sometimes it's, you know, it's hard to carve out space for that. So I'm glad to hear that because that was really was our hope.
1: Yeah. I I think, um, I think it's important because I, I, I even myself in the field as a, you know, as a psychologist myself, I don't hear about act a lot. So I really feel like, you know, Putting it into the format of a daily journal will be helpful in explaining it and breaking, like I said, breaking it down. I, I keep going back to this idea that it's hard to hear that the what the suggestion is is just make space for or accept these negative feelings. Um, it's so opposite to I think the culture, which is you know a commercial um, capitalist society where. There's a product you can get for everything. And so I think you really, I like that it's a day by day. You just keep kind of plugging away at it. And so, you know, I don't know if you want to say anything about the, the format of it, but it's just, I guess I just want to say it's a very well organized, um, you break down a lot of the terms, you know, you just, you're going to give people language too, I guess that's the thing you know, people yeah. don't know about ACT, but they also, we don't always know how to ex- express, like you, you talk about cognitive diffusion and you talk about different things I think will help people.
0: We really tried to break it down. So what we did ACT is consistent or is composed of six, they call them core processes. And we took each one and made it basically, if you did it every day, it would be a week, right? So we broke them in, so we took each process and broke it into seven daily, you know, daily, you know, it's a reading, a couple little things you can try out, a little journaling, a little personal story, so that each process was really just kind of in a little bite-sized nugget. And then in addition to the six core processes, we talk about starting out with just kind of laying the groundwork for doing this work. And so we talk about compassion, self-compassion, we talk about self-care, real self-care, you know, like whatever that means for you. And we talk about just carving out time with intention. And then we go through the six core processes, again, breaking each one down into bite sized like seven individual kind of standalone units. So you can do them in whatever order you want really. And then we end with how do you integrate these six core processes and take it into the world outside you, you know, you know, this is not just about you. You're, we're also in relationships and in this broader social, social world. And in my opinion, people are usually more content in life if they are engaged in the world and in relationships. And so we really try to just break it down. And so if you, you know, if you start from day one and you go through the whole thing very systematically, it's an eight week program. Um, But it's not, we wanted it to be realistic, like where it would just take a few minutes a day. It's things you can embed in your daily life. And that was a challenge for sure to kind of really make it bite-sized and accessible like this. But I mean, this is, this is based in behavioral science, where we know that if people take on goals that are too big, they tend to fizzle out, you know, the new year's resolution type goals, where it's like, I'm going to start exercising two hours a day and totally change everything about my life. Well, those types of goals are too big and they often don't stick. So we wanted to just make it, you know, small steps along the way that people could take and try it out in their own life.
1: I'm kind of laughing when I hear you say that because right, people set these big goals up for themselves. They don't achieve them. And then they end (laughs) up feeling bad about themselves again, uncomfortable and what's wrong with me. And then they turn to these unhealthy ways of responding. And it just, this is what perpetuates the problem. This is how we end up feeling stuck. Like I'm stuck every time I try. And so again, and I think people really appreciate when there's some structure. I think it's uh, having built-in structure and something that supports the process is really helpful. And so I like that you did a journal because a lot of times you get a self-help book and it will say, I'm to follow these five easy steps or whatever. And the five steps are often a lot more complicated and you're stuck having to figure out, well, what's going to be my system. And I, I, I mean, I, I love a journal and, um, That's a beautiful journal too. I think I keep telling you that the cover, I love the cover of it. So when it's nice, looks nice sitting around, you know, I like it on my nightstand and blue is my favorite color. Um, (laughs)
0: Oh, perfect. Yeah. yeah. We loved the design actually because you (laughs) don't really see it until it arrives in paper and you're holding it in your hands. And, and I didn't, it's hard to imagine it from looking at the proofs. And so when it, I actually just got my first copy, I guess it was, a little over a week ago and I was so happy with it because it really is beautiful and it's nice. It has a nice
1: format. So thank you. And it's a nice size too. It's, it's so funny because, but, but, you know, I'm sure listeners can resonate with this, but anyone who loves books, it the feel of a book, the size of the book, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's a, so it's a really beautiful book. And, and I just want to say, I think it's so complicated. This whole idea is so on some on some levels, it seems so easy. Just pause, you know, notice and choose. And how how easy could that be? And it's so complicated. So it just this is the the journal really captures that. Like it's there's easy steps you can do. You could take it slow. It's easy, and yet it's a life changing. It's a life changing approach. Really, it is to that reconnects you with your values and and can help you really make a difference. Um, I'm just going back to like, you, you could have gone to bed after giving your six-year-old the bath and, you know, after already, that was annoying that she dumps a bottle of shampoo and all that. And you could have gone to bed feeling horrible because you screamed at her and that didn't feel good. You could have gone to bed because she was a mess. She starts bawling and crying hysterically. And then you're even more annoyed at her. I don't, there's so many ways in which like a bad situation can just get worse When we have a hard time taking a deep breath and just being like, it's a bottle of shampoo. I mean, yeah. Okay. I got to get through to her. Don't do that again. Right. We can't do this, but you know, and I just think that's the beauty of these, this kind of a process taking the time. And another thing you you had just said too, is that real self-care, you know, it's actually, this is really not about, When you make more room for your negative feelings, it's, it's, there's some liberation in it, which I think is going to be hard for people to wrap their head around. But if they get the journal, it'll help, it'll help them see that.
0: Yeah. It's a paradox, right? Because you kind of think what's so just almost counterintuitive, but in my life, this is true is that the more you can just allow those feelings to be there, the more it frees you up. And it does seem paradoxical. Sometimes we think we have to feel better first before we can do these things. But ultimately, it is a process. I think that's really important what you just said. And I've been doing ACT for, gosh, I want to say like maybe not 15 years, but close to it, probably 12, 13, something like that. And it's a process for me too. And we get sidetracked. We get stuck again. We get back into our old habits. We struggle with our emotions. We lose awareness. We gets in the, in the book we talk about when you get sidetracked from your values, you know, you're noticed you've gotten off the path that you want to be on and you have to reorient. And the truth is, I mean, when, when we talk about values and acceptance and commitment therapy, it's not an end point. There's never going to be a time in your life when you're like, okay, done. I got this values checked off. You know, if you care about being kind, if you care about, you know, treating your children with respect, there's never going to be a day when you're like, okay, done, you know, I got this. It's just, it is, it's a life work in progress. And I think to me, what really matters is, you know, do you kind of keep at it over time when life gets hard and challenging, do you still maintain that? And that's the, that's the pro- process right there. And it's a meaningful way, I think, to, to engage it's, There is meaning in it when you look at it as a process in that way.
1: Right. And just built into the process is right. Is compassion. You know, even regardless of how you handle things, you've got to have compassion for yourself and that might be the best you could do on that day, you know? And, and so I like, I like that because there isn't any, any, we're all going to be human at the end of the day. And so, you know, built into being human is going to be making mistakes. And, and so it's this idea of, okay, so I'm human. I'm going to make mistakes, but how do I get back to being more the way I want to be? Yeah,
0: that's right. Yeah. Common humanity, right? We're all doing our best and it's not always perfect, but we have to sort of forgive ourselves for that. Definitely.
1: Definitely. So before I let you go, I just wanted to check in with you. You gave me a little hint. You said, oh, we had to cut out a lot of stuff. Maybe there'll be another book coming (laughs) that you guys had to produce a little bit, but I just wanted to check in and see if there is anything kind of going on for for you right now, or if you're just busy trying to, you know, work on spreading the, the news about the book?
0: Yeah, I mean, at the moment, I'm, I don't have any other books in the pipeline right at the moment. Stay tuned. You can check my website, which is Um, I'm, I'll am i be doing the podcast, Psychologists Off the Clock, so that's a good way. And and I do some workshops and trainings and talks and that kind of thing. And I have a blog. So I'm going to just, for now, kind of do that and get this current book out and and, you know have my therapy practice and try to have a little space for a life, (laughs) you know, a personal life, which is hard. Um, well, and I think we all have to figure
1: out how to come out of COVID too. So that's another whole, you know, how are we going to, that's
0: right. Yeah. Right now that's taken up a lot of my, my space in my life. And so I think, you know, to be continued, I don't, I don't know what's ahead after this, but I, you know, I did, I wouldn't have guessed a few years ago, some of the things I'd be doing now. So
1: we shall see. Awesome. And so the best resources is, is your website. So people can check out, check out your website and check on workshops. And, and yes, I highly recommend psychologists off the clock, tons of really interesting interviews. And you know, any listener who wants to hear more from Debbie can, can check out those episodes. You'll hear they, more
0: of my voice than you ever wanted to. If you listen yeah. to the podcast.
1: <laughs> and they'll be lucky, lucky to do that. Thank you. So thank you again for taking this time to be here. And yeah, I look forward to talking with you about another book someday.
0: I appreciate it. Thank you, Elizabeth.